It is Independence Day for those of us that are Americans. And um, since that is kind of front and center, probably on people's minds, being a holiday, we're going to talk this morning about biblical government according to Calvin and Hobbes. Now, kids, don't get your hopes up too much. We are not working from the comic strip this morning, although as my family saw what I was working on, admittedly, the kids were like, their eyes, you know, kind of opened a little bit, and they perked up, and Janine said, you're really going to disappoint them if there's no Calvin and Hobbes in it. So there's one coming towards the end that is appropriate for today. But biblical government, according to Calvin and Hobbes, today is the day that we commemorate, on Independence Day, our independence from Britain. So it's the Declaration of Independence, and there's all kinds of fun discussions that can be had around the question of, is that a proper thing for Christians to have supported? And then when you fast forward to our situation today, we have an increasingly totalitarian government in our own country. We have increasing numbers of violations of liberty. So the questions come up, how should Christians respond to tyrannical government? But really, before we can even answer that question, I think there's a question that needs to kind of come first, more foundational, and that is, what is good government? What is government for? How does God define it? And so today, what I would like to do is this. I'm going to start by going through, for the bulk of the message, seven principles of biblical government. Okay, seven principles of biblical government. For each one, uh, there's going to be a Bible passage, a brief explanation, and then just a kind of illustration from church history of how that idea or doctrine developed in time. And then... By the end, we're going to take a brief look at the Declaration of Independence in light of these principles. Kind of in between those things, we're going to do a brief um, kind of counterpoint to those seven principles. There's another vision for government that we're going to talk about. And then we want to finish by taking a look at the government of Christ. So that's where we're headed today. And I want to just mention at the outset... Um, there's a lot of different sources that have been helpful to me as I've thought through these issues. One in particular that was helpful as I was putting things together today is Glenn Sunshine's book, Slaying Leviathan. And um, as the message goes on, you'll probably understand what that title means and why that's appropriate. But his kind of overview of Christian history was helpful in, in how I was trying to put together kind of what is a really big subject to narrow it down to just one message to give us an overview this morning. There's a lot of other um, resources that are helpful, and I'm going to save those and maybe just highlight them real quick during our response time after the message this morning. So let's jump in. Seven principles of biblical government. The first one is the principle of limited government. Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, Jesus says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And uh, I, I'm going to have the verses up here this morning. You're welcome to turn and follow along. There's one in particular that I am going to have you turn to when the time comes, and that's Romans chapter 13. So if you want to be hanging on to that one, but it's going to be 20 minutes before we get there. So Jesus says in this passage here in Matthew 22 that certain things belong to Caesar and certain things belong to God. In fact, in this, in this passage, he's talking about paying taxes and his point is, when you look at the coin, how do you know that this coin belongs to Caesar? And the answer is, it has his image on it. And so the question is, well, how do you know what belongs to God? Well, what has God's image? We do. 
And so everything about us belongs to God. Caesar may have a claim to your money, his image is on it after all, but God has a claim to your whole life. You bear his image. And so we have here the principle of limited government. And sometimes we explain this as sphere sovereignty. There are different spheres of government that God has instituted. There's self-government. We're all supposed to be governing ourselves. There's the family government. There's the church government. And there's the civil government or the state. And each of those spheres of government has things that are given to it by God, and it's responsible for that area, but it's also responsible not to extend itself and encroach on the other areas of government. The state may have a claim to taxes, but the state may not lay claim to your whole life. The state may not lay claim to those areas which God has given to you personally, or to the family, or to the church. Whenever we think as Christians about the state or the government, we need to consciously remember that our first allegiance, our primary loyalty, is to Christ. Government's a good gift from God. 2 Samuel 23 tells us that when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light. Like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes the grass to sprout from the earth. Good rulers are a blessing from God. And part of the reason that that's true is that good rulers limit themselves to the authority granted by God. He doesn't exceed his boundaries. He doesn't grab power for himself. He doesn't interfere with your personal freedom or that of your family or that of your church. Limited government, sphere sovereignty. Now, in Christian history, the early church faced the challenge of how to live faithfully in the face of an empire, the Roman Empire, that claimed total allegiance. The Romans were fine with people worshiping their own gods as long as they recognized the supremacy of Caesar. Everyone was expected to put a pinch of incense on the altar and to say, Caesar is Lord. And in that context... The early church proclaimed, Jesus is Lord. That means that Caesar is not. And that's why the charge against the Christians in Thessalonica, for example, Acts 17, was, quote, they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So the Christian view of government begins with the understanding that the state is limited. The state has proper God-given authority, but only within the sphere that God has given it. Second principle, checks and balances. And the verse I want to share here is from Romans chapter 5. This is verse 12. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. All men are sinners. That includes rulers. It includes kings. If kings can sin, then they're not absolutely right just because they're the king. And that means that kings and rulers cannot be completely trusted. So building on the first principle, limited government, we have now the principle of checks and balances. There must be a way to limit the authority of a ruler. There must be a way to deal with a ruler who becomes a tyrant. And that concept is nothing new in America. In the Middle Ages, the Christian governments of Europe were limited. They were constitutional monarchies. The Western tradition 
was over time working out principles that had han been handed down from men like Aristotle and Augustine. Now Aristotle is not a Christian. He lives three or 400 years before Christ. But his writings were being recovered in the Middle Ages and they became influential again. And Aristotle identified three different kinds of government that are good along with what they become when they go bad. So for instance, there's monarchy, a king or a queen. That's a good thing. Or you might have an aristocracy. You have a few who are maybe the nobles and they rule. Or you might have a republic where there's representatives who directly represent the people. All of those are good forms of government, Aristotle said. But when they go bad, they turn into something different. So a monarchy becomes tyranny when it goes bad. An aristocracy becomes an oligarchy, a rule by the elites. And a republic becomes a democracy, mob rule, following a demagogue. Augustine came along and he wrote about the city of God and the city of man. He said the city of God is God's kingdom. It follows God's concerns. So the church is part of the city of God or the kingdom of God. The city of man is mankind seeking his own power in opposition to God. Now, we are citizens of the city of God, but we live in the city of man. So we're supposed to seek the good of the city of man, but that good is only found ultimately when the city of man lives according to the standards of the city of God. Now, one of Augustine's great contributions was that he clarified for us the doctrine of original sin. And that's why I brought up Romans 5.12. All men have sinned. So Augustine says, nobody should be completely trusted. When you put Aristotle and Augustine together, then you have a political system that works best when it takes into account original sin and puts in place checks and balances on those who are in power. So a realistic ass assessment of a, a man's tendency to grab power means we're gonna spread out the power across the different forms of government with checks and balances in place that don't allow power to be concentrated in any one individual or group because all men are sinners. Every single one of us. Third principle is covenant theory and the consent of the governed. In Exodus 19, as God's introducing the covenant, we read this. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And the, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Now, the third biblical principle here is the consent of the governed and the covenant theory of government. John Calvin worked out the covenant theory of government in the city-state of Geneva in Switzerland. And as he studied the book of Exodus, in particular the passage that we just read, Calvin observed that God asked the Israelites three times to agree to the covenant before the covenant was ratified. And so he said, well, if God himself asked for the consent of the governed, then all human government must also be based on the consent of the governed. 
That's where that idea comes from. And the theory of government that he developed was based on this idea of the covenant. Sometimes it's called contract theory, but contract theory is really just a secular version of covenant theory. It's just kind of taking God out of the picture, but it's still a covenant agreement. And the idea here is that there's a covenant or agreement between the ruler and his people, between the state and its citizens. The power is inherent in the people, and the people grant the authority to the ruler according to the terms of the covenant. That's why our constitution begins with the words, we the people. And as governments developed in the wake of Calvin, these covenants became more and more explicit, more and more direct. Often they were written and signed agreements, publicly stated so that everybody knew the terms of the covenant, which also meant everybody knew when the covenant was broken as well. And that leads us to the next principle of government, the twofold covenant and the, the twofold covenant and the doctrine of lesser magistrates. For this, it's helpful to go back to the Old Testament and see a, a very interesting story in the life of Israel here. Athaliah was an evil woman who married into the royal family in Judah. So her husband was the king and her son. And when her son, the king, died, she took the opportunity to slaughter the rest of the royal family. She herself wasn't royal. Remember, she, royal, she, she married in. So she slaughters the rest of the royal family all except for one young infant that she misses, Joash, who gets hidden away in the temple for six years, and she claims the throne. Well, once he was old enough, Joash was brought out and was enthroned by the priest, Jehoiada, who was loyal to the royal family of David's descendants. When Athaliah heard what had happened, she cried out, treason, treason. But Jehoiada's plan continued and the people sided with Jehoiada and Joash and Athaliah was executed. And then in verse 17 of 2 Kings 11, we read this. Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people and also between the king and the people. So the principle of the twofold covenant is seen in this story, and particularly in this verse. Notice what Jehoiada led the people to do at the beginning of Joash's reign. There's two covenants that are made. The first covenant is between the Lord and the king and the people. Okay? So that means that the Lord is party to the covenant that organizes the government rule. The king and the people together are covenanting to follow the Lord to be the Lord's people. The second covenant is between the king and the people. So the king is committing to rule according to God's standards and the people are committing to obey his rule as long as he rules according to God's standards. That's the twofold covenant model. But also note how Joash's reign begins. Athaliah is already on the throne and according to the, to the way most Christians think today, the people should just obey Athaliah. After all, we're supposed to obey the powers that be and she's the powers that be. But Jehoiada doesn't think this way. Jehoiada is a priest. So he has a certain position in overseeing the civil laws of the land. He's not as high as the king, but he is in a position of power. He's what we would call a lesser magistrate. 
He's not the superior magistrate, the monarch, but he's a lesser magistrate. And he leads the people in revolt against the superior magistrate because the monarch, Queen Athaliah, was evil and tyrannical and illegitimate. That's the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. It says that when the superior magistrate or the superior higher ranking civil authority makes unjust or immoral laws, policies, court opinions, the lower or lesser ranking civil authority has both the God-given right and duty to refuse obedience to the superior authority. And if necessary, to actively resist that superior authority. And if you're wondering, for instance, in this story that we've looked at, what God thinks of this, it can be seen in two verses. Number one, summarizing the result of all of this for the land. Second Kings 11 verse 20 says, so all the people of the land rejoiced and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. Joy and peace are the result of the actions of the lesser magistrate, Jehoiada, revolting against the evil tyrant, Queen Athaliah. Secondly, at the end of Jehoiada's life, here's the summary that we get. This is 2 Chronicles 24. But Jehoiada grew old and full of days and died. He was 130 years old at his death. And they buried him in the city of David among the kings. He's not a king. He's a priest. Why did they bury him among the kings? Because he had done good in Israel and toward God and his house. Well, this doctrine, twofold covenant and the doctrine of the lesser magistrates, began to develop more completely in Germany in the 1500s particularly. For example, in 1531, there's a group of princes that come together and they form what's called the Schmalkaldic League. And so this is a defense league against the Holy Roman Emperor. So if the Holy Roman Emperor begins to encroach on the liberties of any one of those princes, they will all band together to oppose the emperor. Well, that group, they, they form this league, and then they come and they ask Martin Luther what he thinks of it. And he says, that's no good. Romans 13 says, you must obey the governing authorities. And so then they countered Luther by saying, the Holy Roman Empire is a constitutional monarchy. The king was elected and installed by the princes. So since the power originated with them, they have the right and the duty to oversee him. Luther goes back and considers that for a while. And he says, if that's the case, then yes, I think you're right. And after a few years beyond this, in 1550, we see in the city of Magdeburg, in Germany, a group of uh, leaders that come together and write something called the Magdeburg Confession. They are taking a position rejecting an edict of the emperor because it was unjust and it violated their faith. So they write up this document that states their position and why they believed that they have the right and the duty to stand up for their people in rejecting the emperor's edict. So that's called the Magdeburg Confession. And that confession is the first historical kind of full statement of this doctrine of lesser magistrates. Now today, in our country, in 
Canada and other places, there are pockets of courage where certain sheriffs and town councils and counties and even states are standing up against the tyranny of the federal government. When they do that, they are enacting the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. They're defending their people against the unjust encroachment of immoral actions and policies from the superior magistrate. And the foundation for that kind of check and balance is rooted in the twofold covenant and the recognition that if government officials are ministers of God, as Romans 13 says, then the Lord himself is party to the covenant of rule. The next principle then is delegated authority. Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 13. I want you to see this. This is kind of the classic passage on government in our Bible. Romans chapter 13, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. All right, here's what Romans 13, 1 through 7 says. <clears throat> Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And so the principle that we identify here is that of delegated authority. First of all, the authority belongs to God. Government rulers are, in the words of this passage, God's servant for your good, the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, and ministers of God. In other words, they represent God. They carry out God's will. They reward what God says is good, and they punish what God says is evil. Second thing is, the rulers do not have the authority to define or redefine good and evil. God defines it. Rulers simply reward and punish what God says is good and evil. Third, the passage says, anyone who resists what God has appointed will incur judgment. May I point out that that includes the rulers. When a ruler resists what God has appointed, that ruler will incur God's judgment. So, finally, we need to realize that God's call to obedience here assumes a ruler that rules according to God's standard. You can't obey an evil law from an evil ruler and pretend that you are somehow obeying God because Romans 13. 
Even in the, in the secular world, we recognize this. This is what the Nuremberg trials were. You, as an individual, are responsible to do what is right. God is not setting that responsibility aside by what he says here in Romans 13. When a ruler does something that's wrong or gives commands that are wrong, you are responsible to not obey. Okay, the passage is not an excuse for you to just do what you're told. You're responsible to do what is right. Even if a ruler does not share your Christian faith, when he represents God's standards, you are to comply. You don't have good rulers and, and, and you look at them and say, well, he's not a Christian, so I'm not going to obey that. No, you as a Christian are called to obey a pagan ruler who rules well. Your heavenly citizenship does not give you license to ignore earthly rulers, but you are still responsible to do what is right, regardless of what an evil ruler says. Now, historically, as the Protestant Reformation spread and it took root in Britain, Christians were faced with lots of difficult choices. The monarchs often demanded obedience in areas that violated conscience. And a number of Christian leaders from England and Scotland found themselves fleeing Britain and going to places on the continent like Geneva, where they studied with Calvin and others like him. John Ponet wrote a short treatise of political power. He was exploring the question of what to do when a ruler becomes a tyrant. He supported the lesser magistrate's authority to remove the tyrant. Christopher Goodman left England for Geneva, and there he became good friends with John Knox, who had fled from Scotland. Goodman wrote a work titled, How Superior Powers Ought to Be Obeyed by Their Subjects and Wherein They May Lawfully by God's Word Be Disobeyed and Resisted. He argued that Romans 13 applied only to legitimate rulers who do what God says, rewarding good and punishing evil. Lesser magistrates should oppose a tyrant. But if they don't, the people themselves may oppose a tyrant. Remember, the ruler is in a covenant agreement with the people, and tyranny is the violation or the breaking of that covenant. John Knox wrote a series of tracts in 1558 that attacked ungodly rulers, and he specifically called on the nobles and the people of the land to respond in opposition. Scottish theologians, George Buchanan and Samuel Rutherford, opposed the idea of the divine right of kings. Buchanan wrote that nobles should take action against the monarch, but if they don't, the people have a right to take up arms themselves. The king was subject to the law. He's not above the law like the divine right doctrine falsely claimed. And Samuel Rutherford wrote Lex Rex, the law of the king. He too argued the king is subject to the law, not above it. Natural law, to which we are all subject, reflects divine law. It applies to everyone, including the monarch, he said. So the authority that God gives, he gives to the office, not the individual. The individual might forfeit the authority by being disobedient to God. And Rutherford said, since tyranny is satanic, not to oppose it would be resisting God. Resisting tyranny, he said, is honoring God. Now that idea from him and from others who are writing in that vein gets picked up very prominently by American founding fathers. Benjamin Franklin would go on to suggest that the phrase, 
rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God should be placed on the great seal of the United States. Now that didn't happen, but Thomas Jefferson liked it so much that he put it on his own personal seal. And these writings that I was summarizing laid the foundation for much of what would shape our American system of government. John Adams, for example, was influenced by John Ponet's writings and also by the writings of Junius Brutus, a French Huguenot writer who wrote Vindiciae Contra Tyrannis, a defense of fighting against tyranny. He said that book was very popular. It was influential to him, but he said it was very popular and influential across the colonies. The next principle then, God-given rights. God-given rights. For this, we go to Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, in the account where these verses are found, we see that God has given us certain rights as people made in his image. So let me just give you three basic ones. Number one, life. God has given us life. He's the creator. Since he gave it, no one has the right to take our life away except under very narrow circumstances that God defines. So, for example, the state is given the power of the sword, for instance, to execute uh, criminals in capital cases like murder. But those are very narrow exceptions. Second, God has given us liberty. You may surely eat of any tree except this one. One restriction, and within that restriction, great freedom. Third, God has given us the right of property. He gave Adam work. Work the garden and keep it. And then he gave Adam the right to enjoy the fruit of his labor. You may eat. That's the labor theory of property. When you put sweat equity into something, you're putting something of yourself into it. There's an ownership there. You have the right to enjoy the fruit of your work. This implies the right of private property. And later in Exodus, God states that people have the right to defend their private property from those who would take it away. The reason that owning private property is necessary to liberty is that one who owns nothing is essentially a slave. They are entirely beholden to others. They have nothing of their own with which to improve their condition. So life and liberty and property. John Locke came along and took the biblical principles of government that we've been talking about and he synthesized them kind of into a, a big political theory. Now, he did secularize it. He tried to take God out of the picture of the covenants. There's good and there's bad in what Locke has done. But for our purposes today, I just want to point out one thing. Locke rightly pointed out that these rights that we have, these rights to life and liberty and property, are pre-political. What does he mean by that? He means those rights flow out of what God did in the garden. God gave those rights before the state ever existed. Those rights come from God. They do not come from the state. The state does not grant the right of life and liberty and property. The state is to protect those rights. 
It's a very important idea. And that also means that the state can't take those rights away or infringe on those rights. And when a government does that, the people have the right and even possibly the duty to defend those rights by resisting the government because that's a government that is going outside its sphere. It's taking unto itself something that does not belong to it. And by the way, you may know there was quite a battle at our country's founding over whether or not there should be a Bill of Rights included with the Constitution. Eventually it was agreed that the first 10 amendments, which really don't amend anything, we call it the Bill of Rights, would be put in place as the Constitution was, was adopted. But what's important to realize is why there was such a battle over whether or not to include a Bill of Rights. It wasn't a question of whether or not those rights existed. Everybody that was arguing agreed that the rights existed. Those who did not want to list a Bill of Rights were concerned because they did not want people to get the wrong idea in two ways. First, they didn't want people to think that these were the only rights that people had. And more importantly, they didn't want people to think that the government was somehow granting these rights these were God-given rights. The government's job was to protect those rights. They were concerned that if people thought the government granted those rights, then the government could take those rights away. So for a biblical understanding of government, it's crucial that we understand these rights as God-given pre-political rights, not rights granted by the government. The seventh principle is the law of liberty. For here, James chapter 1 and verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer but who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So the principle of the law of liberty. Liberty means being able to pursue virtue, able to pursue the good life, the life as God has designed it, true happiness not happiness in a trivial sense, like we use the word happiness, but happiness in the meaningful sense of life as God's designed it. In this verse, we see the connection between law and liberty and living well. The law should create an environment in which we have liberty to live and act virtuously, to live and act according to God's commands. So the purpose of government is to ensure that that environment is maintained. How does the government do that? In large part, by rewarding the good and punishing the evil. That gives us liberty to pursue what is right and good. Now, historically, the Great Awakening in the colonies brought a new emphasis on individual conversion, not just going through the motions of, of, of what the church had as church life. Not that the church was unimportant, but it was, it was not being dependent on the activities of the church for your relationship to God. So there also came with this a new sense of the individual's authority and accountability before God, not mediated by a priest or a church, and that translated over into government. Individual responsibility to be accountable and to be involved and responsible for government as well. There also came with the Great Awakening and with Puritan New England in general, a new emphasis on the Bible. Gutenberg had invented the printing press uh, a long time before at this point. But now there's a proliferation of religious writing and Bibles in almost every home. And, and so this 
creates an environment in which all of a sudden many more people are aware of exactly what the Bible says. And in Puritan New England, they were dedicated to living according to the dictates of God's word. So that meant everything needed to be grounded in scripture. If scripture didn't place limits on something, neither should the government. No ruler should be permitted to cross boundaries that God had set. It should also be noted that the American documents assume that liberty is what we've just said. Liberty to pursue what is right and good. It's not license, freedom from all restraints in general. It's freedom within boundaries, just like in the Garden of Eden. But after the American independence movement, other revolutions come along that don't have the same vision. The, the most kind of stereotypical one is the French Revolution, which is happening just as our country's documents are getting put in place and we're being founded. The French Revolution was a casting off of all restraint. And Americans looked across and recognized that. There's a German historian of the day, Friedrich Geentz, who writes this little book con contrasting the American Revolution and the French Revolution. And that book is translated into English and published in America by John Quincy Adams. It was very well known that there were differences between the American Revolution and the French Revolution. The differences were pronounced. They were widely recognized. Now, since that time, we've gone downhill in that we have lost a sense of morality. We've lost the concept of absolute truth. We've embraced moral relativism. And the vision of liberty that the church has developed and that was kind of enshrined in the founding of America cannot survive when the very idea of virtue itself has been undermined, when we don't even know what is good. Those are the seven principles that I wanted to give you this morning. Now I want to give you the counterpoint, an influence that, that was going the wrong direction. And this is Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes held to a mechanical philosophy. Everything was explained by the interaction of atoms and particles bumping against each other. Okay? Now, his philosophy doesn't deny God, but it does see the world and men as machines acting according to kind of just the determination of what the atoms are doing. And because he removed God from an active role in the world, God had no role in human government. Now, Hobbes was the tutor of Charles II, who becomes King of England. And Charles was an enemy of the Puritans. Hobbes was very pro-royalist or pro-monarchy, which was natural if he's employed by the king. But his political philosophy was this social contract where the king had total authority. There's no role for the people. There's no natural rights of the people. Even religion is up to the monarch because God's not part of the vision of the government. So Hobbes writes his political philosophy, and it's a work called Leviathan. Now, just describing the title page here will give you a good understanding of Hobbes's position, just looking at the pictures, okay? So first of all, the title, Leviathan. That comes from Job 41. This is the serpent, this massive animal, this beast, right? Believed to be formed from two Hebrew words, the word Leviathan. So there's, there's one word that means to connect or join. There's another word that means dragon or serpent. The, the Westminster Assembly that wrote the catechism that we've been going through, as they wrote their commentary on scripture, John Downham says this. He says, 
This creature, Leviathan, in Job 41, was named this because by his bigness, he seems not one single creature, but a coupling of diverse together, or because his scales are closed and straightly compacted together. Now, Hobbes uses the word Leviathan to give the picture of what his vision is because the monarchy is a power that comes from all the people coming together, joined together into this one massive power that is embodied by the king. So the power is from the people, but it's vested in this one lone individual who wields that power completely and absolutely. Let me zoom in on the bottom part here. Okay, this illustrates the complete, whoops, total joining of the power of the state and the church. So on the left, we have the column that represents the state. On the right, the church. So you have the king's castle and the church. You have the king's crown and the bishop's mitre. You have the cannon and you have the, the power of excommunication. You have the weapons of war and you have the tools of logic. You have the battlefield and you have the church council. And so you have this entire system of the state and the church. And he says all of this together, all of this power is vested in the king, the monarch. So when you look at the picture at the top, you have this giant figure, the king, looming over the land. In one hand, he has a sword. That's the power of the state. In the other hand, he has the shepherd's staff. That's the power of the church. And the body of the king itself, it looks like scales, like Leviathan. When you zoom in on it, it's hundreds of people because the king's power is made up of all of the people who are submitting and joining their power into the king and handing it over to him. There's also then at the top a quote in Latin from Job 41. And the translation of that is, there is no power on earth to be compared to him. That's Hobbes's vision of the state. Totalitarian. Leviathan. Now Hobbes tutored Charles II toward the end of his reign Charles II was frustrated with not being able to get his way with the parliament, so he totally dissolved the parliament, and he alone, ruled alone as the single sole power, putting into practice exactly what Hobbes had taught him. And that totalitarian vision of government is the exact opposite of the biblical principles of government that we've seen this morning. Now, I said at the beginning, that this was biblical government according to Calvin and Hobbes. Well, we've now heard from both Calvin and Hobbes. John Calvin and Thomas Hobbes. But since it was pointed out to me that the kids would be disappointed if there wasn't Calvin and Hobbes, here we go. Okay, so somewhere in communist Russia, Calvin says, I'll bet there's a little boy who has never known anything but censorship and oppression. But maybe he's heard about America and he dreams of living in this land of freedom and opportunity. Someday I'd like to meet that little boy and tell him the awful truth about this place. To which Calvin's dad says, Calvin, be quiet and eat the stupid lima beans. By the way, Bill Watterson, the author of the Calvin and Hobbes comic strip, lives up in Chagrin Falls. He was a political science major at Kenyon College here in Ohio, and he has said the name of his comic strip is an inside joke for poli-sci majors. It really is referring to John Calvin and Thomas Hobbes. 
two of the most influential political and theological thinkers whose visions for government continue to battle against each other today. Now, in a sense, we could sum up that contrast in this way. Revelation 13, I'm going to read for you verses 16 and 17, and this is the passage about the mark of the beast. Okay, so this is the beast that rises up from the earth in opposition to the Lord and his people. These verses say that the beast causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. So that's the famous mark of the beast, right? So what is it? Is it literally something that's going to be plastered on your forehead or put under your skin or something? No, it's symbolic. It's a cheap knockoff of what we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6 in what's known as the Shema. So listen to what God says here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You see the contrast. The beast wants to draw people into false worship. God's words are, there's only one God. That's where your total allegiance should lie. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. God's people are to symbolically have this central claim about the Lord. He is our God. There is only one God, and we are to love him with our entire being. That claim is so central that it should mark all of our thinking and all of our actions. All of our thinking on your forehead and all of our actions on your hand, are to be shaped by who God is and who we are in light of this. So Calvin's vision of government and that of all of those who continued to develop those ideas in biblically faithful ways embody that vision. The beast of Revelation is an earthly ruler who rises up in opposition to God's people. By the way, we'll get to talking about Revelation in the new year, and I'll tell you who the beast is, okay? But you got to come back for that. The beast leads people to false worship, and he persecutes God's people. And his followers, symbolically, get a counterfeit mark on their forehead and hand, meaning that all of their thinking and actions are shaped by this worldly power. And if you don't buy into that philosophy, what's the result? You can't buy or sell. That's Hobbes' vision of government, totalitarian. So when Jack Phillips won't bake a cake in celebration of a gay wedding, what's the result? They seek to cut him off from buying or selling because he refuses the totalitarian vision of Leviathan. He insists on seeing the world God's way. And for Hobbes and all those like him, that's unacceptable. And that's why Christians must be vigilant whenever government encroaches on what does not belong to it. Every instance of tyranny 
aimed at dethroning the good and the true and the beautiful is the beginnings of Leviathan rising. I said at the beginning, we wanted to briefly apply this to the Declaration of Independence. So let's do that and I'll be quick. The first thing to note, the Declaration refers to God four times. First, he's, no, he's, he's described as the creator, which means everything flows from him, including the rights that are going to be talked about in the Declaration. Second, the laws of nature and nature's God. Third, the supreme judge of the world. And fourth, divine providence or overseeing. Notice that those three after the creator describe our three branches of government. The laws of nature and nature's God, the legislative branch. The supreme judge of the world, the judicial branch. Divine providence, the executive branch. Our government is modeled on this understanding of who God is and the fact that government ministers are to be his representatives. What's the nature of the Declaration of Independence? What kind of document is it? It's a divorce document. There was a covenant. The covenant has been broken. And so now the relationship is severed. But it begins by describing what government should be. What the covenant had said should be the case. So when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands, the power is dele delegated by God to the people who invest that power in their leaders, but the leaders are still accountable to the people. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Why are the rights unalienable? Because they are God-given, they are pre-political, they are not granted by the state. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We noted before life, liberty, and property. Here, Jefferson assumes that property rights are necessary to the pursuit of happiness. He makes that clear in his other writings because otherwise you'd be a slave. But all men should have the liberty to pursue virtue, to pursue the good life as God defines it as such. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. The origin and purpose of government is to secure, not grant, these rights or to put it in the language of Romans 13, to reward the good and punish the evil so that an environment is maintained where men are at liberty to exercise these God-given rights. Deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. There's Calvin's observation from Exodus. All government begins with the consent of the governed. That whensoever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it's the right of the people to alter or abolish it. The lesser magistrates and the people they represent have the right and the duty to resist a tyrannical government. You get the idea. The declaration then goes on to describe how the king has violated the covenant. And if I put our seven principles up, limited government, the king has exceeded his rightful authority. Checks and balances, there's no divine right. The king is in the wrong. Original sin, the king can be wrong. Covenant and the consent of the governed, the king has broken the covenant. And so the people are revoking their consent. 
The twofold covenant, the doctrine of lesser magistrates, there's this appeal to God because he is party to the covenant. And they state, we therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, so they are the representatives of the people interposing between the king and the people. Delegated authority, since the king has become tyrannical, he may be removed from power. There is no divine right of kings. God-given rights, the king has not protected their rights. He's violated them. And the law of liberty, to pursue virtue. The laws the king promotes should be likely to affect their safety and happiness, but the king is doing the opposite. And so, therefore, the colonies are divorcing themselves from the king. Every earthly ruler is a shadow or reflection of the true king, Jesus. Some are good representatives, some are not. And especially as we consider the failures of human rulers, grabbing power, failing to represent their people, encroaching on liberties, we should call them to mind the one ruler who has all rightful authority and what the Bible tells us about his rule. So let me finish with three verses. Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The government will rest on him. That's a good place for the government to rest because he's a wonderful counselor. He's the almighty God. He's a good father. He's the one who brings peace. And once his government begins, it will continue to grow without end and it will last forever. And here's the good news. It has already begun. Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus' government has, be has already begun. All authority has been given to him. He's seated on the throne. And because of this, we are to go and disciple the nations. The nations, and that includes their governments, are to be discipled and taught to obey what Jesus has commanded. Even if you and I live in a moment where it seems like the forces that oppose Jesus are overwhelming, we look at our country and we wonder what is happening and what can possibly be done about it, we need to remember who is truly on the throne. And that's why the final passage that I'm about to read should be encouraging to us. Revelation 19 gives us a picture of the king that we serve. Jesus, our true king. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings 
and Lord of Lords. Lord, this morning, we want to recognize as your people that you are King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That does not make human government irrelevant, but it does tell us something about how that government should operate. I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment in how we interact with the state. We pray for our leaders, our rulers, that they would come under submission to you, that they would adopt your way of thinking, that they would adopt your standards, and that in doing so, they would be a great blessing to the land, to the people. We thank you that you are on the throne, as we've already sung this morning from the Psalms, and that as we continue to sing this morning, we would be honoring you, our true king. We thank you for your rule and reign. Help us to live faithfully as your people. In the name of Jesus, amen.